good issue for all women. Hello and welcome to one of this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here. Over on Serving Numero Dos, Deborah Jane Appleby and Kate McCabe, top birds of the Ace Strong Female Leads podcast, talk about lesbian representation in popular culture, where they're portrayed, how they're portrayed, and whether or not it's okay for straight actors to play LGBT characters at all. That chat is the first in our LGBT History Month series, which will be running throughout February. In this episode, Jen and I caught up with Caro Howell, director of the Founding Museum, to talk about Bedrooms of London, the museum's forthcoming exhibition in partnership with the Childhood Trust and highlighting the awful and, frankly, Dickensian experiences of children living below the breadline in our capital. Photographer Katie Wilson has taken shots of the, I'm going to say sleeping spaces, because a lot of these can barely be classed as bedrooms, of children living in poverty in London, and these are accompanied by first-hand narratives collected and written by Isabella Walker. You might already have seen some of the images in the Nationals, and I'll make sure we put some on our social media account so you can have a look, because they are extraordinarily powerful and just heartbreaking. Jen and I had a brilliant chat with Caro, who speaks eloquently about child poverty, as she challenges the prejudices and stereotypes associated with it, and also explains what we can all do and must do to help these kids and their families. Because uh, it's looking unlikely that the government is going to step in or step up. If you are in London and able to get to the Foundling Museum, Bedrooms of London runs from February the 8th to May the 5th. Hello, Jen and I are joined by Caro Howell, Director of the Foundling Museum in London. Hey Caro, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, we have got you in to talk about a specific exhibition, which is about child poverty. But before we chat about Bedrooms of London, could you give us the lowdown on what the Foundling Museum is and why it exists? The Foundling Museum is in Bloomsbury. So it's about halfway between the British Museum and King's Cross Station, if nobody knows where we are. We tell the story of the Foundling Hospital, which was simultaneously the UK's first children's charity, but also its first public art gallery. And it was founded in 1739 to take in babies who would otherwise have been abandoned on the street of London by families, mothers particularly, who for various reasons, usually poverty, were unable to care for them. It was the brainchild of an amazing philanthropist called Thomas Coram, and two of his most important catalytic supporters were the artist William Hogarth and the composer George Frederick Handel. Hogarth of Gin Lane. And Hogarth of Gin Lane, yes. Hogarth, who was himself a great humanitarian and philanthropist and activist and social campaigner and um, found a way to combine his art with his, I suppose, social activism in a way that really changed the lives of children in London forever. And the charity that was founded then, the Foundling Hospital, continues today as the adoption charity Quorum. So that work that these people put in in the 1720s and 30s continues. It's still going. It's still going. And the museum shows the astonishing collection of art and sculpture and furniture and clocks and archival material that was donated by the artists. That was the way that the artists found to use their skills to help these children was to donate to the charity some of the best examples of their work. So these were all the leading artists of the day, artists that we now know very well, Gainsborough, Reynolds, Hudson, Ramsey, Hogarth. And by donating this work, it gave people a reason to come and visit the hospital because there was nowhere in London at the time to see contemporary British art. So they came, fashionable Londoners came to the Foundling Hospital to see the art. And then once they were there, they saw the children having their meals, having their lessons, singing in the choir and their heartstrings were plucked. But simultaneously, they were looking at the best that British artists could produce. And so they were then inclined 
to commission British artists rather than Italian and French artists, which is what everybody had been doing up until then. It's a very clever idea. It's a very clever idea. It's the definition of win-win, really. Absolutely. <laughs> and the museum isn't resting on its laurels in that in that sort of way because, obviously, if you think when people think museum, they think the past. But you're very much looking at what's happening in society today. Exactly, because I think that that tradition, that what I always think of as a relay that Hogarth kicked off has been going on ever since then. Dickens was a great supporter in the 19th century and our fellows at the museum today include people like Grayson Perry, Jacqueline Wilson, Michael Morpurgo. These are all creative people who are passionate about improving the life chances of young people, particularly very disadvantaged young people, and using their skills to do that. And I think now it's completely obvious and we expect artists, whatever the discipline, to donate to charity auctions to do benefit concerts do fundraising and it really started at the founding hospital and so the museum through its exhibitions and displays shows different ways in which that tradition continues and that even though artists like Hogarth have been dead for over 250 years it's still a story about contemporary artists and how they have an amazing capacity within society to shape how we see the world but more importantly to change opinion and to galvanise society at large, to, to get involved when they can and should. Well, that leads very neatly onto Bedrooms of London, which is a new photographic exhibition in partnership with the Childhood Trust. And it comes from photographer Katie Wilson and writer Isabella Walker. And it documents the living conditions of London's most disadvantaged children. And you've worked on the project since the beginning, right, Caro? Yes, we were approached by the Childhood Trust because they had been working with Katie. They had these, this amazing body of photographs that Katie had been taking in the... And the word bedroom is being used very loosely, the mm. room in which these children are living. In each of the 33 boroughs in London, there isn't a borough exempt from childhood poverty. And the Childhood Trust are working on a report which will be released in time for the opening of the exhibition in February, which is really detailing the challenges that families living in poverty face, the different obstacles to them getting themselves out of poverty, the situation in terms of social housing, private landlords, the devastation that this uh, sort of is wrought on families, their physical health and mental health, the developmental chances of the children. Mm -hmm. And they were really discussing with us whether we were interested in these photographs. And of course, for us, it goes to the very heart of our story, which is how creative people can, through their work, and in this case, Katie's photographs and Isabella, the first-hand account she's been documenting from the families, how this creative work can, in a sense, do something that no amount of statistics and reports can do, and how it can bring the work of the Childhood Trust and the situation for these families to a much wider audience. And situated within the Foundling Museum, it really places what Katie and the Childhood Trust are trying to do in this 300-year context of society being galvanised by creative people to get involved and do something to make things better for the most disadvantaged, particularly children in our community. Could you describe some of the photos for us so that the listeners can get an idea of, of what they're showing? They range from spaces which are absolutely empty and bare of anything. Some of the photographs you would almost not believe there was there were humans living in that space. I mean, I should say for a start that the spaces are empty of people. It's yep. just traces of people. They're quite like still lives in a funny way, that it's these objects that speak 
to humanity in these particular families. Other rooms are absolutely crammed to yeah. the gunnels with everything. You see one image where the parents and children are sleeping in what's clearly a kitchen. I mean, yeah. they are in one room and the one room is a kitchen. And I think some of the most shocking images it takes you a while to process what the reality of living in these spaces is for the people who occupy them. And I think for me, some of the most shocking are the spaces where there is simply no empty floor space left. And when you see something like a high chair in that space, you know that there's a child, a toddler who should be learning to walk, but there physically is no space for them to walk in. And you just think, but how is this child learning to stand and crawl and run and how does that set back their development and a lot of the narratives of the families talk of having to have rolled up towels in front of the doors to stop the smell of drugs coming through that the corridors are in a sense stalked by pimps and and gangs and so they can't let their children out of their rooms and whole families living together in one or two rooms if you don't have a washing machine and you have small children then the little money that you have mm. is going on laundrettes yeah. to just clean your children's clothes. And for anybody who has children or is around children, a lot of washing. it's a lot of washing. There's mm. nowhere to dry anything. Things get mouldy. I mean, it's the practicalities. And I have to say, we, the BBC picked up some of the images before Christmas and they were then in turn picked up by some of the national papers. We were at the museum and the Childhood Trust were obviously thrilled that it, we want as many people to come and see the show as possible. And I was looking at the tabloid and the mail online and... Oh, don't the, do that. <laughs> <laughs> because they had done the coverage. And the comments that were coming in oh. immediately after, they just, they turned your blood cold. It's horrific, it was like it? a deficit of any kind of empathy and the assumptions that people instantly jumped to. They were benefit scrounges. They were... You know, why did they have each other? You just think, oh, oh, my God. And so one of the challenges for people to come and see this show is precisely because those preconceptions are being challenged. These are families who, as Hogarth knew himself, bad things happen to good people. And they are in situations where they're but for the grace of God. Oh, Therefore, absolutely. It's like, what, know, two, if you miss two pay packets, I think yes, it could be I any say, of us. You Everyone have, is two pay packets away from being on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. You, have, you have women who are escaping abusive relationships mm -hmm. who are offered a, ho a hostel space and told, if you don't accept this space, even though it will lead to you losing your job through no, relocating, not only will you be declared voluntarily homeless, but your children will be taken into social into care. So you have to say yes to a hostel, which is supposed to be a temporary solution. And years later, you're still in this space, which is unsafe, dangerous for your children. There are mothers who are sex trafficked. You have people who've lost jobs. It just is, they are people like you and I. Mm -hmm. And it is shocking that in this country, um, in supposedly one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we have... 700,000 children living in poverty in London, not in the UK, in London. In London. Yeah, well, you've kind of beaten me to what I was going to say, which is like, obviously, Tories, austerity, the rising use of food banks and more children living way below the breadline to the point of it being Dickensian. Yes. And like you say, it's estimated there are about 700,000 kids living below the poverty line in London alone. So it might seem a redundant question, but why now? Do you think people just need waking up to this reality? I think they do. But I also think, and this is again where our hope for the uh, exhibition, I think 
One of the powerful things about the Foundling Museum is that it reminds people that all of us, whatever our skill set, we all have the capacity to make the world better. And I think often some of the challenges that we face, be it climate change or childhood poverty, it seems so overwhelming. It seems sort of impossible to envisage how you can make a difference. But the reality is we can. And that's what Hogarth showed us in the 18th century. That's, in a sense, what our story is about. And what we want with the exhibition is we're working with a fantastic company called Scriberia, who are turning the report that the Childhood Trust is producing into a visual, engaging graphic for people so they can literally see all of these different factors. And then this will be a takeaway for people. And on it will be two calls to action. One will be simple. So what I describe as I cannot go to Carluccio's across the road and buy a three pound cup of coffee without doing something. Call for action. So, yep, yep, you can just do something very quick right now to help. And the other, we're working with the Chartered Trust to find a way to signpost people to charities within their boroughs that if they want to get more involved to see how in their own local communities they could help give more time, give their own efforts, then they can. Because I think if everybody puts their shoulder to the wheel, if everybody refuses to stand by and let it happen if everybody is alert to those easy spun narrative lies that calm us all into thinking that the situations like this that we find ourselves in are somehow normal logical a natural result of you know so it, and yeah. it's not yeah, if you're looking at the picture of the tory helping out at the local food bank and thinking oh that's a good person then yeah you're not on the right page <laughs> but i think it's ones help a london child campaign <laughs> but i think it's also just terms like universal credit oh. it sounds like this positive thing oh, it's, it's when it so isn't a positive horrible. thing i mean the department of work and pensions their data shows that 85 percent of households who've had their benefits capped are single parents single mothers and of course, it's families with children who find it so hard in terms of renting, in terms of private landlords, families on benefits often are refused. Um, think there are there's such a shortage of social housing. Rents are astronomical in London, which absolutely everybody knows. You have no cause evictions. There's no stability for families. And 50% of private renters who complain to their landlords find themselves evicted within six months. So... The situation for families, low-income families, is is terrible. And things like universal credit, everybody acknowledges is making it worse. And yet, so much of that narrative around it is, as I said, spun to make it sound so reasonable. Things like benefit caps and bedroom taxes. And you go, this is a nonsense. This is an absolute nonsense. And how is society benefiting from restricting and undermining the life chances of the next generation? How how can we how can we live with ourselves if this is what we are forcing families and children to to endure? Got plans for Valentine's Day? No, me either. Actually, that's a lie. I do, and those plans are moving to a new location as of February the fourteenth in London. We will be at King's Place near King's Cross, and we will be hosting the fantastic. Dame Claire of Balding and the excellent Sarah Pascoe. Tickets are on sale now, so, you know, get them quickly because they are going to sell like baked goods that are warm. Get yourself over to www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue where you can find out about this and all of our other excellent shows.
I think it's worth picking up on that point about the language that's being used in the media and by the government themselves. I've seen over Christmas, I've seen like a bunch of tweets by the Home Office about immigration and the way that they talk about immigration. And it makes my fucking blood boil. Take some responsibility. It's it's horrific the way people are being manipulated to think about these things. And it's a conscious effort it must be a conscious effort by government by the media to make people think this way mm. and i think it's something that they're keen to tap into because the reality is and it's it's not us in our best light but the reality is it's easier not to think about it and if you are given some sort of soft soap it's all right we've got this under control guys yeah then why would you want to think about it? And I think it's a combination. It's both that and also spinning the narrative that mm. somehow these people have brought it on themselves. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, so isn't it, it? That's the language of the workhouse, this idea about the deserving, deserving and the and undeserving, undeserving poor, yeah. the feckless, the work shy, rather than people who... I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? About In December, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation brought out a report that said that the number of workers in poverty in the UK has now hit four million people and that one in eight in the economy is classed as working poor. Um, so that's people who are in employment. And you've got, and, and as a result, half a million more children are now in poverty over the past five years as a direct consequence of this working poor. So it really is Dickensian. And we know that zero-hours contracts, the kind of the salaries are absolutely stagnating. But rental, you know, the price of renting property is, it just keeps climbing. And there's no easy way out once you get into being mm. destitute to being that poor it's almost impossible yeah. to get out on your own yeah so not only are you having to be you, you know you're working you're trying your best but then you do feel like you're relying on the kindness of strangers and what that does to people's self-esteem yeah. is yeah. also incredibly damaging and if that's yeah. what you're seeing as a kid growing yeah. up and i think isn't it that's it also comes through from the narratives that isabella has been gathering from the families that you know, the parents, their physical and emotional effort that goes into them trying to provide an environment where the children feel safe and loved and cared for, but environments that are fundamentally unsafe yeah. and uncared for. I think that's why this idea of bedrooms is such a powerful one, because we, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have had bedrooms that we loved, that the bedrooms for a child are supposed to be a manifestation of of your parents' love for you a sense of security safety it's so hard to imagine what these parents are going through on a daily basis to try and provide that for their children that sense of security yeah it's a question we ask on stage in our in conversation events of our guests which is what was your childhood bedroom like because people have very fond memories and even growing up working class I had my own bedroom yeah I I was lucky enough I didn't even have to share but there's no space that the photo of the living room slash kitchen that four people two adults and two kids are living in because there's three other kids in another bedroom they're just heartbreaking yeah well we have one family where the the one room that they all live in is so small that in order to do his homework the little boy has to do it in the bathroom and he has to use the loo seat as a desk they're in a in a hostel and I, I just again it mm. it defies imagining. I think of my son um and uh <laughs> the, the battles <laughs> to get him to do his homework. But you know, he's sitting on a chair at a table yeah. in a warm house with adequate lighting and food in his tummy and Which would he has no like, excuse basically. Yeah, <laughs> and it would feel like the least that we could expect for a Western society a country in the Western society in two thousand and nineteen. 
Yeah. And it is important. It's important for education. It's important for, apart from like for your sanity, Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. but like it's important that people have a place where they can go, where children have a place where they can go and do their homework and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, you know, the little things that we think about now in terms of poverty and the notions that people have about what is or isn't poverty, like, oh, well, you've got a TV or, oh, well, you've got like... <sighs> You need a computer now. If you're a kid and you don't have access to a computer yeah. or the internet, you're at a huge disadvantage. Yeah. And that's not what we think about in terms of poverty because obviously when we were growing up, we didn't necessarily have all... It wasn't something that well, everyone a, had. There was but, a similar thing where we'd get told to go home and look it up in our encyclopedias. Hmm. And I'm like, we we don't yeah. have encyclopedias. Can't yeah. afford a set of Britannica. Yeah. But it's it's a whole new level now. Yeah. But I think also, isn't it, it's about is all of those knock-on things that I... My memory of childhood is constantly, you know, moping into the kitchen and whining at my mum that I was bored. And basically, she'd just open the front door and kick us out and tell us to go and do something that was interesting. Yeah. But again, you get that narrative coming through from these families. It's just what lies outside the door Absolutely. is not safe for their yeah. children. There is no place for them to play. And of course, the the insecure housing families get moved on they go from hostel to hostel that ability to make friends to put down any kind of roots to have any sense of stability and childcare costs the sort of extortionate um cost of childcare is an is another impact that a number of the mothers talk about just you know that worry about coming off maternity leave how they're going to meet the rent and meet childcare working four days a week for nothing basically yeah. i think that's the other thing that we hope that the exhibition will enable people to see how all of these different things interconnect. It really is the kind of knee bone connected to the thigh bone. It's you, the, there is never just the one factor, which is the reason why a family is living in poverty, children living in poverty. It's multiple factors that make it kind of, as you say, Kafkaesque, impossible to extricate without support. Yeah. And the support shouldn't be coming from food banks and other charities the support should be structural it should be there to enable people to get out of poverty and i think you know you might have seen that there was a cross-party report that was saying that england needs three million new social homes in you know by 2040 three million there is just not enough social housing and wow. the obsession with ownership mm -hmm. is a nonsense because we all know just from our own friends and acquaintance that ownership is out of the question for lots of people who are in full-time employment and are not living in poverty. Yeah. And I think also personally, I wish politicians were sort of, I don't know, braver about asking us, why is it that we pay our taxes? I pay my tax in order to live in a country that is civilised. You know, I want to pay my taxes so that children are educated, that citizens of this country, however they've got here, their basic human needs, food, water, shelter, security, you know, the NHS... These are reasons why I pay my tax yep. and why I am happy to pay more tax. Yep. People need reminding, why are we doing these things? Just personally, speaking on a personal level, things are back to front when austerity is about penalising those who are ready at the bottom with the very least. It's like, how can this possibly be right? This is one of the things I always think about when people say, oh, yeah, benefits, well, you're having a lovely time with your, like, you're claiming 20 grand in benefits a year. Like, A, it's going to be very, very rare that anyone is given 20 grand's worth of benefits in the year. But if they are, it's probably because they have quite a few kids and various other situations going on. 
How much fun do you think someone is having if they have 20 grand a year to bring up four or five kids on? Like, how nice do you think that experience actually is? I agree with you. But I think the other thing is, isn't it, is that that idea that somehow because there will always be somebody trying to game the system, everybody should suffer. Mm. Because the reality is there is always somebody trying to game the system. And that doesn't matter what level of society. So that doesn't matter whether it's Mm. MPs diddling their expenses or people with their offshore tax havens or, you know, there will always be people in society. They're allowed to game (laughs) the system. That's okay. But that's what I mean. There will always be people who, in a sense, who will put their own personal needs above everybody else's to a point of illegality. However, the majority of people, and I believe this again across society, the majority of people want to work. They want to have a life that has value. They want to contribute to the world around them. They want to be part of a community. They want to feel needed. They want to do best by their children. We have to place our hope with the majority. And if we obsess ourselves with the minority, we will all suffer as a result. This exhibition is about reminding us of our common humanity of hopefully trying to raise the volume on people's empathy and to give people some very positive signposts about how they can make things better because we all can and we all have a responsibility to do it. And we cannot clearly wait for those with elected responsibility to do all the legwork. Where can people find out more information about Bedrooms of London and also about the Foundling Museum? They can go to the Foundling Museum's website, foundlingmuseum.org.uk. The exhibition starts on the 8th of February, runs to the 5th of May. Sign up to the mailing list, check out the website and come and visit because each visitor will be, I think, an extra step, an extra shoulder to the wheel to make things better for these families. Working on the exhibition myself, I would have said I was fairly socially aware. I was fairly alert to a lot of this. And I have learnt an enormous amount. I think even though all the families are anonymised, I would like to take this opportunity to thank them for their honesty and letting the Childhood Trust and Katie and Isabella into their lives and for giving us all, as a wider society, that opportunity to walk just a few footsteps in their shoes and get us just a small, small glimpse of what daily life is like for them. Thanks so much for talking to us, Caro. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Hello, Hannah here, constant interrupter. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Standard issue for all women.